0: Session
1: with Dr. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Holokwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in: 310-441. Again, our studio number, 310 Let me announce the book of the week for this week. It is The Highly Sensitive Person by Elaine N. Aaron. The Highly Sensitive Person, How to Thrive When the World Overwhelms You. Uh, looking forward to sharing that with you on Monday night's show. As I mentioned uh, this previous Monday, several people had messaged me on social media saying for me to cover this topic of highly sensitive people which some people consider a classification not exactly a diagnosis but a way of um, classifying some people who are highly sensitive and so uh, to be honest i'm not even starting uh, i haven't started this book just read the introduction but looking forward to reading it and sharing it with you monday night to see what dr elaine aaron has to say on the topic i wanted to start off the show today to discuss an article I saw in the New York Times that is looking at a new type of treatment for depression. And that new treatment is ketamine. Now ketamine is a type of anesthetic that used to be used more commonly. It's not used as much now as an anesthetic, but also it did become a popular street drug or club drug, even earning the name Special K and it still can be used in that way. But recently, there has been research looking at its potential effects for what we call treatment-resistant depression. Uh, Treatment-resistant depression usually means the person has gone through some types of treatment, including two or three types of antidepressant medication, but has not uh, received results or has not gotten better, even with those treatments. But recent research is showing that ketamine— Uh, might have some potential benefits for people who are not getting better from regular treatments or the typical treatments that we use. And so also, as I discuss this article and discuss ketamine, I'll also mention some other what we might consider alternative treatments, but ones that are showing promise, but also they sometimes challenge our conventional way of thinking or because we associate them in a certain way, we don't think they should be helpful. And ketamine also falls into that category because as I mentioned, it has been used even as a street drug or a party drug. So if someone approaches you or a doctor approaches you and says, I want to help you with your depression using a street drug, most people will have a reaction to that. And even there is research being done on the treatment of PTSD using MDMA, which is the active drug in ecstasy or the street drug ecstasy. So if someone told you I want to treat you or treat your child using ecstasy, most people will have a quick knee-jerk reaction to say no and think that it must be bogus, but there's research showing it actually can be quite helpful. So um, I hope we can keep an open mind in recognizing that oftentimes things that we don't think can be helpful or we assume are not going to be helpful in fact can be. So this article is in the New York Times by Benedict Carey fast-acting depression drug newly approved could help millions so if you can look for that in the new york times and actually uh, benedict carey wrote a book how we learn that was a book of the week a few months ago actually i realized that after i read the article nonetheless so ketamine they're finding can be very helpful for some people who have treatment resistant depression and one of the benefits is that it can act a lot more quickly than antidepressants. So the typical antidepressant drugs, things like Prozac or Lexapro, which are called uh, SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, they tend to take a few weeks or even months to have effects, even if they are helpful. And this can be really difficult for people who are suffering from severe depression to have to wait weeks and months. And even worse, some people don't show any response and will be asked to switch drugs and try a different antidepressant. And even with that one, they might not see results either. So it can be very frustrating. And uh, I've experienced this in my practice that when you recommend for someone who's depressed to see a psychiatrist, you have to get them to understand that it can be helpful and you hope it will be helpful, but there's no guarantee. And also that likely they'll have to wait a few weeks at least to see some benefits. And that could be Uh, something that can be difficult for people to deal with. But with ketamine, what they see is that sometimes within hours or days, people see a significant improvement or can see improvement, and that is very promising. And so the drug that has recently come out, they are calling it S-ketamine, which is a nasal spray that people can use to administer ketamine. Now, although it's a nasal spray, currently because... Uh, they don't know exactly what the effects will be people have to do it monitored they can't take the spray home but they can get it uh, done and after a few hours they can leave they need to be monitored for two hours after they receive the treatment but still this is big because the fda is approving it the federal drug administration here in the united states which means that it can move towards becoming more accepted and then potentially being covered by insurance because as of now There actually are ketamine clinics all across the country, but people have to pay out of pocket, which can end up becoming more, uh, which can be expensive, and lots of people can't afford that. But there are many people receiving ketamine treatments now for their depression, and actually, it's usually not done nasally. It's done through an infusion or an IV, an injection, that people receive that administers the drug. So ketamine is available currently for depression, but it's not currently covered by any insurance as far as I know. But this is a good sign that now the FDA is approving this nasal spray, which means that there will be more research and more funding into it. And eventually we might see that it could get covered by insurance companies, which would be great because this could be a new type of treatment for depression that might help lots of people. And depression is caused by not just one thing and it's not cured by one thing either not everyone gets better in the same way some people that are depressed just get better over time without any treatment some people from just talk therapy alone can get better some people from a combination of talk therapy and psychiatric medication might get better the typical types of medication and for some people none of those help and this is why we want to look into new types of treatments that can be helpful, and ketamine might just be one of these new drugs. And there's a lot of people who are very excited about it because there's a research showing that it could be very helpful, but at the same time, people want to be a little skeptical or not get their hopes up. When the SSRIs came out, the antidepressant medications, people thought this was going to take away depression forever because it would just cure everyone. But we see that that's not the case. Again, it doesn't help everyone. And the same will likely be true of ketamine, but it can be very helpful. And the reason why I bring this up is that I want people who are struggling with depression or who have a family member who's dealing with depression to not lose hope. Because depression itself, unfortunately, can make us become hopeless or take away our positivity or optimism at the minimum. And so people try treatments and they can feel, well, I've already tried therapy and I've already tried um, a medication and I'm not getting better. Maybe I'll never get better. Maybe this is just me. And they can try to accept that and give up hope. But I hope people will hear this and think, okay, even if medication didn't work, let's try something else first of all try a few medications but then after that there are things you can try like ketamine which is one type of treatment Uh, also i wanted to talk about non-medical or I should say non-medication types of treatments that are available as well because there's ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, that can be helpful and also TMS, transmagnetic stimulation. So ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, one, the name can sound kind of bad because even has electro and convulsive and I think it brings up bad reactions for people on top of the fact that it was administered in ways that were not as good as they are now and also in movies like Uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, which was looking inside a psychiatric hospital, you would see it being administered in these very inhumane ways. And it was made to seem very barbaric and that the person was struggling and suffering as they went through it. But there's a lot of research showing that actually can be helpful for people who are experiencing treatment resistant depression. And that the way it's administered is not so inhumane or doesn't have these really bad side effects or negative experiences that people used to have. So it might sound like something horrible. Someone says, we're going to go shock your family member or we're going to shock you. A lot of people have these very negative reactions to that and assume it's something really bad. But I do want people to be aware that this is a treatment that is um, scientifically shown to be helpful for many people. It's not just something that is... Uh, some old-school way of doing things. There's actually research showing it can be helpful. So again, if you are not getting better or a family member or loved one is not getting better from their depression and they've already gone to therapy and they're taking medication and still not getting results, don't give up. There are other things that can be done, other treatments that can be done. ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, is one of them. And another one that is similar, um, but even in some ways might seem less severe, is TMS, transmagnetic stimulation, which involves sending these pulses to the brain from the scalp. So it's non-invasive in the sense that these electrodes and things are placed on the scalp and these magnets, but it's not actually um, in any way causing those convulsions that people have from ECT or the way you see people respond to that. And it can also be helpful. So that's another one. And I actually met a doctor recently who was doing that in Orange County using transmagnetic stimulation and he was saying he was having incredible results from people who were experiencing treatment-resistant depression, were not getting better despite receiving different types of treatment for for their depression, and then after getting the TMS, the transmagnetic stimulation, for several weeks, they saw a huge response. So again, don't lose hope. Depression does take away your hope, unfortunately. And you might think I'm getting treatment. If I'm not getting better, then I should just give up. But there are lots of treatments out there that you probably have not considered and have not tried. And again, I wanted to talk about some of these today so that people can have an open mind. When you hear of a therapy that involves shock or brain stimulation to your, uh, stimulation to your brain through magnets, people can have a negative reaction and think this is horrible and I'm going to have some huge negative side effects when that does not have to be the case. Or when you hear that a drug that was used as as an anesthetic and also used as a party drug like ketamine uh, is being suggested for your depression, you might think that sounds crazy, but that's uh, not so crazy. There's research showing it can be helpful. Of course, it's not being administered the way it's administered at a party, just like uh, for those research, the research that's being done on PTSD treatment using MDMA, they're not taking people to a rave and giving them ecstasy and having them dance. It's being done in a very different type of uh, format and context. So ketamine can be very helpful. And you might recall a few months ago, I think it was back in September, I read the book, uh, How to Change Your Mind, I think it was called. Yes, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. And he was talking about even other types of drugs like psychedelics, um, including mushrooms and DMT and acid that people were using to help people who are depressed or dealing with, for example, dying and and connecting to themselves in a way that was very helpful. And because we have this idea that a psychedelic drug is something so negative, people are very reactive to it, and they think there's no way we can accept that. And I'll even mention that myself. I tend to have this negative bias towards drugs that are used recreationally than being used for treatment, and I try to be aware of that bias that I can have. Uh, even with marijuana being used, or people saying it could be helpful, my first reaction would be to say, no, it's a drug that's used recreationally, or it's a negative drug. But really, when you think about it, medications are not so different, in the sense that we're introducing some chemical into the body or the brain that's going to create some result. But we just associate certain things as being a street drug or as being recreational, so we assume it can't have therapeutic, medical, or Psychological benefits, but that's not the case. So, I wanted to talk about this study or article in particular looking at ketamine, which is a really exciting. Uh, new line of treatment. People are very excited about the potential this can have, and you'll actually see more and more about it, I'm sure, And different clinics across the country. There's probably some in your own city that administer ketamine, but people are very excited about it because it can be very helpful, but just wanted people to keep an open mind when it comes to different types of treatment and things that can be helpful for themselves and loved ones, because sometimes a treatment you might think is totally bogus or is not something that you would ever want to try might just be the one that can help you out so that article was in the new york times it is fast acting depression drug newly approved could help millions by benedict carey if you want to check that out. And actually I saw this on Dr. Tabasson Vahidi's page. So thank you to her for posting that and bringing that to my attention. All right, let's go to our first commercial break. Studio number 310 You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air.
2: Hi, Doctor.
1: Hi, thanks for calling. Uh,
2: thanks for your radio show. Thank you. uh, so my question is I have twenty five years old son.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: he had, uh, he had uh, MCAT last year. He didn't like his score. So this year end of this month he's applying again. And uh, he was telling me that he's not a good test taker. That's why I was wondering, is that true? Some people are good test takers, some people are not. And do you have any recommendation, anything you can help if he can have, uh, I don't know, he can take better tests? Maybe it's anxiety, nervous?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it can be. That's one of the first things we'll think of. So in asking in general if people are good test takers or not, I'm sure there can be. Some people are better at thinking in an analytical way and can, especially looking at multiple choice tests, they'll do better than other people. But more important than just being a good test taker, which there could be some of that, is especially looking at things like test anxiety, which is, we can say, a type of performance anxiety that some people have. So I'm not sure if your son is dealing with test anxiety. but Yeah, maybe
2: that's the one. Okay.
1: And so what happens is with test anxiety... Unfortunately, what happens is even if you know the material, when you get anxious, we have a harder time accessing things in our brain because some of our mental energy capacities would be focused on that anxiety and what we're worrying about. And also we're going to be in a more emotional state, so we won't have as much access to to things that we usually do. So uh, it is a very real thing that people can experience having test anxiety. And they can get help for it by seeing a therapist working with someone. Even in extreme cases, medication can be helpful used in those um, in small uh, doses. What I mean is used just before the test. But test anxiety can be a very real thing. So it's possible your son is dealing with that um, and he can look into getting treatment that could help him. I would recommend working with a therapist to see if, first of all, even if he has test anxiety, but if anything, it could be helpful to him.
2: Okay, thank you so much. Sure. sure. Thank you. Thank you.
1: All right. And so that brings up a, a good point. I actually wanted to talk to her a little more. Maybe she got the answer she wanted. That's great. Um When we look at test anxiety, so definitely is a very real thing that people can deal with. And as I mentioned to her, what happens is essentially people will say they went blank a lot of times and maybe you've had that experience. And so it's not about knowing the information, but unfortunately, even if someone knows it, What happens is when they become anxious, they don't have access to the information that they know. The knowledge that they have becomes inaccessible to them. And so then it can even snowball. And what happens is you can't think of something and you get even more worried. So the anxiety becomes worse and it becomes harder for you to think about it. And so it kind of cascades into this horrible mess where the person can feel like, all of a sudden they don't know anything. And there's a lot of other things that can contribute to it as well. Because as I mentioned with the catastrophizing or the thinking negative, when we look at anxiety in general, what it is is a worrying about the future or thinking about the future. We're not being present. And so this is why being mindful can be so helpful for individuals if they can't stay in the moment. Because if we worry about the future, we're not focused on the present. So I have a question in front of me And all of a sudden, I feel like I'm not sure I know this question. And rather than just focusing on this question, doing my best to figure it out, or if not, I can move on to the next one. What usually happens when someone has anxiety in general, but a test anxiety, is they start to catastrophize and they start to think about, okay, if I don't get this one right, then what does that mean? Do I not know anything on this test? Am I going to do really bad? And if I'm going to do really bad, does that mean I'm going to fail this class? And who knows how far they go in their head very quickly of how... Horrible, everything is, but they're catastrophizing from not knowing one question into not knowing anything and becoming a failure or failing this class and whatever else might come after that. So, this is where mindfulness can be so important. If we can keep ourselves in the moment, we can do a lot better at recognizing okay, I don't know this problem, but let me move on to the next one. Even in getting a very good score, You're going to miss some questions. So just because you don't know one, it doesn't mean there's some catastrophe or crisis that you're going through. It just means you're having a tough time with this one. But if you do have test anxiety, it's something you should take seriously because when you think about it, a test is there to measure people's knowledge and how much they grasp the material. But when you have test anxiety, you might know a lot more than you're able to show on the test. So unfortunately, you will know a lot of information, but won't be able to perform at a level that shows that. And there can be treatment for that. As I mentioned, therapy can help, and even some types of medication can help with performance anxiety. There is a class of drugs called beta blockers that essentially block the physiological responses that we have to anxiety or that we feel as anxiety so you don't feel as anxious. Because as much as we think of something like anxiety as just in our head, it's very much a physical response as well. And this physical response creates a type of feedback loop. So you feel a little bit nervous and then you feel yourself uh, having a hard time to breathe. And that makes you think, oh gosh, I must be even more nervous. And then that makes you even more physiologically react and you create this feedback loop. I actually remember one time, this was a long time ago, I was asked to speak at a high school, maybe 15 years ago, a friend asked me to come speak. And I hadn't really done much public speaking before and I was a little bit nervous But I remember going to the location and it was somewhere in the valley here in Los Angeles area and it was near the end of spring and very hot and the air conditioning didn't work in the auditorium and it was a packed room. And so I was already nervous and anyone that knows me and anyone here at the radio station knows I tend to be warm anyway. That's why I turned the studio into an igloo when I'm here and most people have to bring an extra jacket just to be okay um but so i already run warm and it was warm and i remember being nervous and then my talk started and because i started sweating i got even more nervous because i thought oh gosh look how much i'm sweating it must mean i'm really nervous and i remember getting more and more nervous and it it cascaded into this place where i felt more self-conscious and more nervous and i think it got worse and worse but then later when i reflected on what happened i realized that my sweating wasn't just due to being nervous it was more because the auditorium was so warm and there was an air conditioning and there were so many people that I was feeling that I was more nervous than I actually was in a way. But then that made me more nervous in this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's amazing how much our physical sensations affect what we feel or in a way our feelings are a type of physical Sensation, and we sometimes try to differentiate them to think. Well, if you're feeling sad, we think it's something in your head, like a just a mood or a thought, um, when really it's always connected to the physical as well. So that's how the medications can be helpful in that way. But test anxiety is definitely a very real thing. Now, something she also mentioned was: Is my son, for example, bad at test taking, or are some people good at taking tests? And I think definitely there are people that outside of anxiety, just are better at that skill of taking tests, especially things like multiple choice tests. They can synthesize things or look at the answers better than other people, even if they have the same amount of knowledge. So I think that definitely can be true. But what I want to be a aware of is making sure we don't take that conclusion to be like, well, some people are good at tests and some people are not. So maybe I'm just unlucky and I'm not good at tests. This kind of uh, brings us back to the myth of talent, where we focus so much on if someone has just some ability or some innate talent, then they're good at something. And if they don't, they're not. Whereas the truth of the matter is what really makes the difference is how hard we work the work we put in. So let's say uh, on a scale of one to 10, you're a six when it comes to test taking and someone else is an eight. It doesn't mean you have to get a bad grade and they have to get a good grade. Maybe you'll have to study a little bit harder than them, but you can still do very well. And more important than that, and, and not just focusing on comparing yourself to someone else, what you're supposed to do is do the best that you can do with whatever talent or ability that you have and whatever we're talking about, whether it's test taking or athletics or something in your job or parenting, you're supposed to do the best with what you have. But sometimes what we do is we like to get caught in the argument or the discussion of who has more talent and just looking at talent as being the reason why someone is successful or not successful. But that takes away our own ability to have an effect on what happens to us. And you might recall the book a few weeks ago that I talked about Grit by Angela Duckworth where she talked about this topic that really talent is what we tend to think is what makes people successful. But she was talking about this concept of grit which is passion and perseverance which actually leads to people being successful or not successful. So we don't want to get too focused on what we just have and either we got it or we don't because almost in anything that's not the case. Even if you look at A talented athlete and you might think oh they he or she just had it in them to be who they are and they had the potential but it was what they did with that potential so if you're studying for a big test and you're a little bit worried if you're able or capable to do well and you get focused on well am i just a good test taker or not that's not really the biggest issue what is important is how much effort you put into this and i hear people sometimes say i'm just not a school person or i'm not I don't learn well or I'm not a, you know, I don't read well. And of course, there are real things like learning disabilities and dyslexia that people have that can interfere. But sometimes when we make these conclusions, like I'm not a school person or I'm not a math person, what it really is, is that we haven't learned the right way to learn it. And also that we've given up on ourselves. And unfortunately, I've worked with lots of kids who have this conclusion they've made about themselves. I'm just not smart. I'm just not a school person, or I can't learn things well, when really it's not that they can't learn things well, but that they got so much negative feedback at a very early age that they felt they're just stupid and they can't do it. And related to the concept of grit, there's also the idea of a growth mindset. They're unfortunately in a fixed mindset thinking that if they don't do well, it's because they're stupid and they can't do it, not they haven't tried hard enough. And they don't have that growth mindset to recognize if I work hard, I can learn something. If I try hard and I get the help I need, I can learn anything and figure it out. But they instead just have concluded that I'm dumb or I'm stupid and they've given up. So we want to focus less on our talent or who we just are innately and what we have and recognize that if we want to be successful, if we want to do well in any aspect of our life, be it school, be it our jobs or even relationships, It's about the time and effort we put into it, not just some innate gift that we've been given. So um, if we're taking a test, we've got to do the best we can with what we're given, not focused on. Does someone have it easier than us? And we do that to let ourselves off the hook, to just say, well, it's not about me and what I'm doing. It's about the difference in our innate ability. And because I don't have it, they're going to beat me every time. And that takes us takes away the part where we have to actually try our best to make things happen. So let's try to focus on what we can do, which is try hard, work hard, get the help we need. If it's tutoring, if it's getting therapy, if it's whatever else, and not focus on what we can't control, which is our innate talent or what we just have been given. And really, the talent doesn't take you that far. It's the hard work that's going to get you to be successful, not just the talent without any hard work. All right, let's go to another uh, commercial break studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty Delocque. We'll be right back. Welcome back to studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. Let's go to a caller, Radio Hamra. You're on the air. Hi, hi, thanks for calling. Um, thanks for taking my
2: call. Sure, um, I called. Maybe a month ago, I was talking about the relationship that I started. Mm-hmm. A little bit of background is um, I'm divorced, not divorced, but I've been through separation and I'm just getting my papers finalized. I, uh, I met a guy at my workplace and he was going through a rough time and he was getting separated. So we started a relationship. Wasn't the right thing to do, but
1: happened. Mm-hmm. But let um, me stop you there. Even in the way you're saying it, he was going through a rough time, so we started a relationship. And you're right, that's not the right reason to start a relationship. And so you're currently separated but not divorced yet?
2: Not divorced
1: yet. Are you in the process uh, of uh, divorce or?
2: Well, I'm just uh, filing the finalized papers to get it
1: fine. Okay, and then is he this guy that from your work he's divorced or single?
2: Uh, he is separated according to the law he has to be separated for a year so he's not past the year. He okay. has to wait. Um, the issue that it came up when we were going to take our relationship to one step more serious, he um, he just thought that he needs to he wanted to be sure that his marriage is really done. So he talked to me and he said, I think we need to put this up on what we have because I can't come to you with a doubt that I could have fixed my marriage. Mm -hmm. I don't want to live with that doubt because he has children. I don't. Um, Which, to me, it it sounds acceptable. I guess I need to do it. I need to give him the chance. But, um, so, we are kind of putting our relationship on hold. However, we still talk.
1: Okay, how long were you guys, how long was the relationship?
2: uh, For us, well, we met each other in the workplace two years ago, and we were just, you know, colleagues working together. And then, when I was separated, and our relationship got really serious, maybe nine months ago.
1: Okay. And then, how long uh, ago did he ask to to put a hold on it?
2: Um, we put a hold on it since November.
1: Okay, so it's about, uh, about three, we four months.
2: Of, yeah, we were kind of seeing each other. We still, like, we had our lunchtime together at work. We you mm-hmm. were sometimes go out, spend time, but, you know, it was only a friendship.
1: Okay, I'm remembering as you're talking, I'm remembering more of the case when you shared it, yeah, yeah about a month ago. But okay. Um, all right, so about three, four months it's been on hold, but you guys still see each other. And I, I think it's something been- we talked about was if it might be smarter to cut the relationship more or to not have this contact because that's make was making it hard for you
2: yes mm-hmm. uh, we are kind of we have to do that because he's he's changing his workplace so he's leaving the company, he's leaving the building
3: mm-hmm.
2: so that's gonna be totally done we are not going to do anything regarding that to see each other probably for a long time but. My, my biggest question is, because my friends are telling me that, oh, you know what, you just need to finish it because he's not really into you. And if you wanted to make that decision, you, would, you should be his first choice. But my own concern is that I'm not going to have a guy back and start a relationship, a long-term relationship, with a doubt in his mind that maybe I'm not the right person. So if I really have feelings for this person, I need to give him a chance. We wrong
1: Well, it's not but just I'm about not. you being the right person or not. It seems that he's saying he, at least from what he's telling you, he wants to see make sure he's getting divorced for the right reasons or that that marriage is not right. and because they have kids, I think it does make sense for him to seriously consider that. It does seem like you and him started the relationship with each other in a, in a way irresponsibly and that it wasn't the right timing. And it was more, it seems like, from loneliness or wanting something, because you said he was going through a hard time, so we started a relationship. And obviously, that's not the right way to start. And so he might have also recognized that, that it was started in this bad way, more from a place of desperation, rather than both of you being in the right place and choosing to be with each other. And so it's not clear exactly what he's thinking. We can't Go into his mind we can only take him at his word but either way you don't really have much of an option he's saying he wants some time and space and you have to give right. it to him you can't not give it to him it does seem like you're trying to figure out in your own mind should you move on yet or should you still hold on hope yes okay and
2: i'm really into holding on to my hope mm-hmm. um But I made this promise to myself that, you know, you're not going to live your life waiting for a person. For the rest of my life. So I I even told him, I said, well, you have till end of summer to just sort out your own life. Then if I'm still available, if my life didn't change and you are ready, then we can maybe have a fresh start. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that I'm making this decision in the right mind.
1: Okay, what did he say to that?
2: Um, he he knows that I'm having the hard time to moving on, mm-hmm. but he doesn't want to take that responsibility to say wait for me because I don't think so. Any any person is gonna say wait for me so I can go, do around and see if nothing is around so I can come back to you. So I was saying that's your decision, but don't waste your life. He said that. Yes. Okay. Not, um, not exactly. Don't waste your life, but he was like, just don't be a fool. That's what he said.
1: Don't be a fool. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. What, you, what What did you make of that? Don't be a fool.
2: Uh, it's basically the way that he talks. He has, um, he has a military background, and he's British, so hmm. his language is kind of frank, and he doesn't have a good. Uh, choice of words sometimes.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, but I don't, it seems like that hurt you when he said that. Are you still there?
2: Uh, my resp- sorry. My response was, uh, well, you can't make that decision on my behalf. I'm just giving you this much time. Mm-hmm. And because I'm coming from. I came out from an abusive relationship, I think I'm being hurt enough in that relationship.
1: This is your marriage?
2: So I'm go- yes. Okay. So I'm going to take this time to kind of focus on myself. Uh, I'm starting doing my career development, to go back to school and then to get myself in a, not the emotional side of my life, but in my career side to get in the right place so I thought even this six months is gonna just get me busy with my more important stuff in my life than being hold on to a relationship
1: well well, yeah I think those parts are important I'm not I don't want to say they're more important but what I think is more important is that even when it comes to relationships if you're not even divorced you're still separated or you're just filing the paperwork when it comes to your romantic life what you need more than to be with someone is to heal and and deal with what's happened you're saying you're an abusive relationship that takes time to heal from before yeah. you're going to be ready to be with someone else and it does yeah. seem like at some level with you and the, this gentleman from your workplace it was less about this is the right time we're right for each other but more two people who in a way were desperate or hurting and wanted someone to just take away that pain
2: Correct. And uh, the last time you told me, you said, uh, you guys like a drug for each other. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And I actually told him, I said, the doctor told me that we are like drugs. That's why we always go back to each other. And I said, yeah, it it sounds right. A lot of times we decided that, you know, we're going to stop right here. We are not going to talk to each other. We are not going to see each other. But somehow, every time, we end up going
1: back. Yeah. And I want you to recognize that somehow... um It can sound, we like to sometimes say things that way to take away the responsibility from ourselves as if it just happened, but we do have to face the reality that we made a decision to allow it to somehow happen again. So I say that just for you to catch yourself because, and that's the part that does have the drug type feeling where it's just, you almost feel drawn towards it. You might be feeling very hurt in your own life and he makes you feel good quickly but like a drug it kind of it makes you feel good but then it brings you back down and that's the problem is that right now the hurt and the pain you have you have to heal that first before you're going to be ready to be with someone and I'm not even sure if he's the right person for you anyway we didn't get into too much about the relationship but it does seem more of a relationship based on taking away pain than actually entering it for the right reasons and especially with the right timing even if he was the right person the timing seems really bad you haven't even ended your own relationship fully as far as getting divorced and he has not Mm -hmm. either so i would focus i think it's great you're focusing on your career and education and that'll be good to help you especially often in an abusive relationship it can be very damaging to our self-esteem and make us feel bad about ourselves or not very good about ourselves so i think it'll be great for you to focus on yourself and building yourself up and feeling good but also focusing on healing yourself whether and not whether it should include therapy but also giving yourself some space to heal
2: i'm going to therapy and good. uh last time uh, uh I was given some medication for my antidepressant.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I wasn't used to use it because I thought, well, I'm going to get addicted but you said, I need to use it and since I'm using it, I actually feel great.
1: Okay, good. I, I'm happy to hear that. I'm
2: actually 90% back to what I was whether it was my workplace, I I was used to, you know, take all the blinds down in the house, no sunlight, I was just so desperate I wanted to stay in dark places. Now I'm kind of can enjoy
1: the daylight mm-hmm. good yeah I'm very happy to hear that that's great and that's uh, what you want to do is con- continue going in that way of, of finding that daylight outside and within yourself and I think it's going to take some time and I'm glad you're also going to therapy because we haven't talked about the details of your marriage but you just said abusive I'm sure that's le- left a big impact on you is there any part of you that still considers going back to your husband
2: no, I I can't even face
1: you. Okay. So what do you think I, has been the delay in, in going ahead with the divorce? Sorry, I didn't
2: understand.
1: Sure, wh- because it seems like filing the paperwork and going forward with the divorce is something you haven't been... Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but you haven't been doing so quickly. It seems like there's some hesitation. Uh, no, there's no
2: hesitation. Okay. Um, according to Canadian law, we have to wait for a year because... Uh, there wasn't any reason actually to get divorced besides that abusive relationship and the okay. fact that I was done
1: that's so, so they consider uh, that, that not any so they consider that not any reason that it was abusive
2: uh, it's not something that I can prove
1: okay, was it so, physical abuse or emotional
2: It was emotional
1: Emotional. okay that tends to be harder to prove, yeah, okay it is. Mm-hmm.
2: um so uh, I passed the year and I'm now, just looking for a lawyer who can file my paperwork
3: mm-hmm.
2: to do it right once and get it done and move on with it. There is no, I mean, when I was going to leave my husband, I thought it through, And I was thinking about it for a year till finally I decided, you know, this is not a life that I'm going to live for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. This is not me. I can't pretend to be happy. I need to find the true happiness.
1: How long were you married to him?
2: Uh, I was married
1: to him for five years. Five years, okay. Now, another thing that came to my mind is the way you talked about this new man saying that it's the way he talks and he has a military background and there's some, there seems to be something, it doesn't mean he has to be this way and I'm making an assumption about a lot of it, but something harsh about him. And so I'm wondering if you can be attracted to men that are a little bit either emotionally angry or cold and that's something that i'd want you to think about as well
2: what uh, made me attracted to this person is because he's mature my ex-husband was used to try to be controlling he Mm -hmm. wanted to control me so he brought down my confidence to negative he didn't want me to have any friends he didn't want me to go back to school he was always loving verbally would show it, bit words, but it was never there. But this person is totally opposite. He is pushing me towards going to school. He wants me, wants me to be successful. He wants to take me out of my comfort zone. Um, at this point, he was saying, "I'm just trying to discourage you from having feelings for me because I'm not sure at this point that we're gonna be back together." Mm-hmm. So that's why he's using all these words to just kind of pushing me away.
3: Mm. Uh,
2: but in general, his characteristic is caring and supportive. My, main, my own main problem is I'm a very supportive person. So normally I don't let people to help me. It's really hard to ask help from people.
1: Yeah, And that's
2: and- I guess, is my downfall.
1: Sure, and it's going to make it hard for you to be in a relationship where there's going to be a back and forth, and you can find yourself drawn towards men who will want to use you. And at some level, you'll be okay with that because you're saying that's more, in a way more comfortable for you, of course, then it gets more extreme. So that's why I think it's so important, and I'm happy you're going to therapy to work on these things because more than likely you'll enter into another bad relationship or with a bad person for you and that's obviously not gonna help. But like a drug, you just wanna feel good now, which I can get. Uh, I'm glad you're taking the antidepressant, which might help you become less depressed, so you might feel less of a need to have someone make you just feel good immediately. But your work is gonna take some time. And so your healing process and recovery from what you're going through is gonna take some time. You're technically still married. you know. So if you can be patient, and it's I, maybe you've been feeling so bad for so long, you just wanna feel good, but I want you to feel good in a way that's gonna be healthy for you long-term and that you keep feeling good, not just a good feeling for a day or weeks or a few even months, but something better long-term. And the way this man is talking, it seems like as much as you can, I think you should move on and try not to think about him. If when he comes back around, if actually it's a big if, cause he might stay with his wife, they have kids and I think, You know, he definitely should try everything to make that work if it can because of the kids, not just stay together for the kids, but work together on the relationship for the kids. Uh, But he seems to be giving you lots of not even just hints, but direct input that you should move on and not rely on him. And I would take him definitely at that word and live your life as if he's not an option because if he's available when you he you know, if and if the big if he comes back, we'll see if where you're at. but if not, then then good thing you started moving on. And either way, I think you need to focus on yourself. even in six months, you might not be ready if you ask me by the end of summer. Mm-hmm. So to me, this relationship, you can't change that it started, obviously, but it seems like it started at the right time, wrong time for the wrong types of reasons. But now you can decide what to do now. And now that you guys have taken, the foot off the gas and and going away from each other it, it seems like the right time for you to almost assume it's done as painful as that might be and also you might not want to feel that pain because you're still haven't felt the pain of even your marriage ending even if you don't want to be in it and so there might be a lot of pain you're avoiding that you'll have to get in touch with correct so um it's the
2: right decision to just put a stop on everything and just
1: think of I, th- I think so based on what he's telling you and even the fact that he's moving um, where he's working it could be right. a blessing in disguise I know saying bye to him might hurt you but again it's like losing a drug it's gonna be difficult but you will be better off for it so I think use that to your advantage that okay you won't have to run into him that'll make it easier and I think cutting ties will make the most sense and for you to as much as you can grieve him as if he's gone If some point in the future there can be something, okay. But we don't want to hold our breath for that because it seems like it might not even happen. We don't even know if he's right for you to begin with. And you have a lot of work to do on yourself that you need to do. So the less you can focus on him and even you might find yourself thinking of him to use even his daydream as a drug. Because we sometimes use daydreaming as a drug to imagine something and go to this fantasy world. So you might find yourself going there and imagining being with him, imagine him coming back and the relationship and the love. But that's just your way of escaping reality again, going away from what's actually in front of you now, Mm -hmm. which is a hard journey that you have in healing yourself, recovering and preparing yourself to then be ready for a relationship.
2: True. Okay. Just, I think right now I'm just being so strong with the whole story that
1: I sure. can't see out of it. Sure, that's how it, That's what that's what happens to us. And again, again, that's the escape from reality into this fantasy world. And so, even maybe in talking to me, part of that's you know that it can get you back to the reality. As hard as it's going to be, I get that it's hard to give up that fantasy and daydream feeling. But you're going to have to come back to the reality, which is you have a lot of hard work to do, but it's good that you're working on yourself advancing yourself, building yourself back up. What you experience with your husband, the, the way you're describing it is, although there wasn't physical violence, it's t- like a typical domestic violence relationship where there's a lot of control and the person wants to make their partner feel small and feel down so that they can control them more easily. And so that took its toll on you and now you're going to build yourself back up and then eventually be ready to be strong in a new relationship and create an even better one for yourself. And that will take some time, but I hope you'll be patient with it and not try to rush the process.
3: Yeah.
1: All right, I'm gonna let you go because I'm gonna get some other callers after the break. Thanks for calling, and you know, if you want to call back again, again in a little bit, we'd be happy to talk to you. Hello. Oh,
2: thank you oh, sure. for taking my
1: My call. pleasure. Yeah. Nice talking to you. Take oh. care. Okay, you All right. Bye bye. Right, going into another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air.
4: Hi, can you hear me? Yes,
1: I can. Thanks for calling.
4: Okay, awesome. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. Um, I have recently um, started the job. Um, I work for a financial company. And I'm a customer service associate, and I've been in this job for like almost a month. And since the job started, I have been um, not believing myself, and I've been having, I've been dealing with so many overthinking. Mm-hmm. And my managers and also the workers that work for me also noticed that, and they're letting me know that if this is how it's going to be, I'm not going to be successful at my job. Somehow I somehow need to find a way to stop this overthinking because they see my hard work. Did do see that I'm doing great at everything and I'm growing at my job. So my question is, as someone who overthinks so much, who always wants to be perfect and she cannot be perfect or mm-hmm. he cannot be perfect, what do you advise to people well,
1: that, yeah. yeah? Well, it's not that you just can't be perfect. No one can be perfect, right? So it's not about you, but the perfectionism is getting in the way. And that's the unfortunate thing about perfectionism is even when you're getting feedback that you're doing a good job, you still somehow think it's not good enough. And, exactly. and that's unfortunate because what ends up happening is you're afraid of getting fired, but your perfectionism might make it more likely that you get fired because you're exactly. good nothing. Yeah, so um, an, an interesting word you use, which we often use, you said you overthink. And in, in a way, of course, it's true. You're thinking too much and that gets in the way. But usually when people overthink or they say they overthink, it's not that they're just thinking more about something. It's that they think about something more and more to end up at a conclusion that they're comfortable with or they're used to. So in this case, it's not that you I don't get the idea that you overthink and sometimes end up saying, wow, I'm so good. I did a great job. You (laughs) overthink and think and think, to, oh, you know what? I could have done better or that was bad or she said this or he did that. So it's just a point for people to recognize that usually when we think we overthink, it's not just thinking more because thinking more can be good if we're doing it in a good way, but it's that we're thinking in a biased way to end up in some kind of conclusion. So, for example, a girl thinks that no guys like her... And so she'll talk to a guy and then afterwards she'll feel good. But then once she thinks about it more and more, she's like, well, he said this. If he really liked me, he would have said, let's hang out tomorrow. But he said, let's hang out next week. And then he said this and he said that. So it's not just overthinking. It's thinking to get to some conclusion she's comfortable with, which is she's actually more comfortable thinking the guy doesn't like her than actually dealing with the anxiety that maybe he does. So I just wanted to point that out to you that to recognize that the overthinking is not you thinking more? It's just to get to some conclusion, which appears to be that you're not doing a good job, or you're bad at what you do.
4: Right. Oh. I just don't know what to do. Like I'm dealing with so much stress, and i I do I do work hard a lot,
3: mm-hmm. and I
4: do study a lot. Just like for example, I come home, I bring my workbook at home, and then I'll just start like reading and rereading, and I'm doing this stuff, and I'm not sure if that's the cause of it that brings me a lot of stress, or what am I doing wrong, because I really need to stop doing what I'm doing, and because I don't want to lose my job, I, mean, mm-hmm. I like what I'm doing, it's just that I need to stop now, or otherwise I'm thinking that, okay, if I do continue this way, the whole team will be affected, and they might not want me to stay mm-hmm. there anymore, Now, so is, I need to find a way. <laughs> yes, is
1: this a job that you're, like you've done before, or is it a new job?
4: It is a new job. Um, I had a retail background, and then after school finished and everything, um, I studied business management.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And then I was looking for a job for a long time, and it's been nine months since I moved to California, and it's a lot of changes for me. <laughs> sure. It's not similar to my old state. And when I uh, got this job, in a call it's like a calling. A customer calls you, and then you just assist them with their. Um, accounts and everything, Mm -hmm. and everything is very good. Like I like where I work, I like the team, I like that I have my own space and everything, and they treat me so professionally, but I don't know what's happening that I think because of the background that I don't have, I just have to study a lot and more and more to get better at this so I can stay in for the longest time. Sure. I don't know what's going on. Like that's the thing I need to find out. Like what is happening, where I can change in a better way, so that way it doesn't hurt myself too. Like I mm-hmm. feel like I'm the main thing that's getting hurt more than anyone else. <laughs> that's
1: true. Uh, it does seem that way. And even you know, there's something you do. You you laugh sometimes when you're saying something a little bit sad or painful. And I think that's even part of how you deal with things. Is you you would rather make it laugh about it than realize you are sad or you're hurting about what's going on which is yes. okay uh, so it's more comfortable for you to do that than to recognize and it could also be a little bit of an anxiety we're on the air I understand to talk about things but it does seem that you're very hard on yourself and so that's, that's unfortunately getting in the way now have you always felt this perfectionism do you see it in other areas of your life for example yeah, school I was like-
4: in school as well so i was completing my degree and i always wanted to be better and i'm thinking it could be due to the fact that i know that sometimes like i might not do as well and sometimes i'm doing well but i always whenever i start something new i feel like i start having that kind of way for myself
3: mm-hmm.
4: i'm thinking like oh my gosh am i doing it enough am i not doing it enough and it just like keeps growing and i feel like i'm just doing something wrong and i don't
1: know what it is like i'm trying
4: to find a book or study about it maybe that helps i I used to
1: do meditation that could help i would actually recommend that if you used to do it start doing that again meditation can help you stay in the moment so you don't worry about things as much it can have a positive effect but it does seem like it's hard for you to accept that you're not going to be perfect and you go to this very quick, easy place of putting yourself down or thinking you're not doing a good job, and usually people that are dealing with perfectionism like you, they don't like trying new things because when you try something new, of course, you're not going to be very good at it and you're going to make a lot of mistakes, so it's actually good that you were able to take a a job in a new type of career, but that's always going to be the most challenging for someone who's a perfectionist because they also come from this feeling, I talked about it before about a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset, that they assume that either you just kind of know things and you should be smart, or if you don't, you're stupid and you're bad. Whereas when you're trying something new, you're not supposed to be good at it because you've never done it before. So we should expect that we have to learn and grow and make lots of mistakes before we can get better. But generally for someone like you, it's hard to go through that growing process and learning process because you feel like you should already know it, even though it's unrealistic.
4: I like, right now, like, I'm 29 years old, and part of me feels that, oh, my gosh, why am I not as perfect as I should be at this age? And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just starting some new career, and I'm learning it, and I'm, you know, it's not as much as being paid off.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Even though my leader, like, tells me that she sees it, I'm doing a great job, it just takes time, and I just have to be patient, but I am not patient at, at
1: yeah, all. Yeah, I get that feeling, and it's it's a hard thing to change. It's very easy for me to tell you don't be hard on yourself that don't think you have to be perfect but i know these things come automatically for you and it's going to be harder hard to change that and not just something that we tell you once and you're going to be able to change your mind but it's interesting because you get good feedback from the people who are your supervisors but you don't believe it now actually i was going to ask you that do you believe that you're doing a good job when they say it or do you tell yourself they're just saying that to be nice Hard of these
4: things that they just want me to they calm, like, hey, you're doing a good job, you know, and then that way I don't overtake it, and then I can keep going with my job. Part of (laughs) me feels that way, but part of me also feels that, because sometimes I can see my growth man. sometimes I can see that I'm growing, and because it's a team, I just feel like, at times, like, we receive email and everything, and then I see the chart that they show us, like, our school calls or whatever, like, what we're doing wrong or right, and then some people are way above me, and I understand they've been there for a long time, Mm-hmm. and it's okay, Things think just how it is, you know, once you've been in a place for a long time, you just kind of get used to your work, and you grow as you go, but, and I keep comparing to. I think that's one of my biggest oh, sure. issues too, I yeah. compare myself to other co-workers, I want to be on top, part, but I'm not, and just like...
1: And that's, a, you know, <laughs> comparison is always a losing game, because even if we compare ourselves with someone who's worse than us, In that moment, we might feel good. But unfortunately, when we compare, we get more in a comparing mindset and we'll always find someone better than us. And then we're going to feel bad. So comparing is always a losing game because you you can't even if you win short term, you're going to lose in the long term and feel bad. And that's not even the goal. The goal is to be the best you that you can be, not someone else or whoever else it might be. But this comes back to the feeling of your own self-esteem and feeling about yourself, which clearly is not as high as it needs to be. So not true. are there some th- short-term things you can do? Probably. But I would also recommend with anyone dealing with something as deep as what you're dealing with, this type of perfectionism and self-esteem type of an issue, to go mm-hmm. into therapy to really dig a little deeper into what you're dealing with. Because y- it's not going to just go away. There are some things you can try that might help. But we're talking about a much deeper issue than just...
4: Yeah, I'm aware of that. Okay. And um, since I just found a job, like I'm ready for my three months to be over. I kind of get situated. And then once everything got situated and I feel calm, and I can go to the trophy. and
3: Okay, good. Kind of and
4: instead of time, yeah, I'm aware of that already. I just good. want to know, like, till then, like, what I can do to kind of ease it down. so That way, they don't get stressed out. at work like this. Well.
1: Sure. Well, I think the meditation you mentioned, especially since you've done it before, I'd recommend that. It's just good for anyone to do that. So... Do that again. But you're going to have to challenge yourself too. When the thoughts come, they're going to feel very strong and real. So I know it's not easy to combat them. But just remember that this is what I do. So just talk to yourself and say, okay, this is, you know you do this. You tell yourself it's worse than it was. Or you judge yourself too harshly to try to remind yourself that this is something that you do. It's not going to take away the whole feeling, but it might help you a little bit that you have to challenge yourself. And also, I want you to realize that as painful as it is when you go to that place where you say you're not good enough or you did a bad job, for some reason, you're comfortable with that. That is your comfort zone. It's hard for you to accept, you know, maybe I'm doing good. Maybe I'm doing well. I'm good at Mm -hmm. what I'm doing. I I should be proud of myself. That's not a comfortable feeling for you. It's comfortable even if it's painful for you to say oh I'm doing bad or I'm bad at this or they don't like me or something yeah, about that I had
4: that. a painful memory still from childhood yeah. like I will, I remember as a child I'm going to summarize it very quickly I know people are on other line but as a child um, I do remember for example as a one subject I wasn't good at like I wasn't good at math and but i went to school in iran because I, I spent my elementary school there and in iran like the teachers would hit me with the ruler on mm. my hand and saying like oh you're bad you're not good at this subject and like, i would go home to get help and then the same negative feedback would be coming toward me and yeah so i feel like that something has to do with it as absolutely well. I, yeah. i'm not trying to bring excuses like oh this is it. no we're
1: not this is not about excuses it's about understanding so I'm not even focused on blame. Is it your fault or their fault? We're trying to understand where you are and what might have led to you being where you are now. And I'm sure absolutely when you're getting those messages, when you're getting hit and being told you're bad and you're not smart, of course, it it gives you that idea that I'm not good, of course, and then also... If I make a mistake, that means I'm stupid or I'm bad rather yeah, than
4: like in high school, for example, or colleges, I would go to like, I, I would fail classes sometimes, like I wasn't perfect. Mm-hmm.
1: And
4: at times when I would get my report card and everything, like my parents would see it and they'd like, oh my God, you're not perfect. You know how you run your parents are like you always have to have this perfect score on your report cards, and
1: Well, many parents are that way, but, but let's look at the parents you had. So your parents wanted you to have perfect grades.
4: Yes, they didn't want to have fees on my report cards. So whenever they would see it, like, they would get pissed off or they didn't like mm-hmm. it, and they would always draw me towards it, and I didn't like that. Of and course. in college time, they one of my parents, not both of them, but in college time, like, they wanted to bring me out of the college because they felt they got a feeling that maybe I don't like going to school. Maybe that is the reason I'm doing that in my class, and that part of it is going to hurt me so much. Because of course. instead of believing me, you decided that I might coming out of college would be the best choice. I understand the parents. The no,
1: I mean, d- and parents. don't keep excusing what they did. And we, I, I'm not, again, focused on blame, but understanding what happened to you, that it makes sense that you got all these conclusions that you're not good enough. And unfortunately, you felt that your parents didn't believe in you, and that's very painful, and that is something you'll have to deal with, and I hope you'll go to therapy to work on that. But eventually, what you're going to have to learn Is that even though they didn't believe in you, you've internalized their voice and don't believe in yourself. But that's something you're going to have to change to slowly believe in yourself, which is going to be scary for you. That's why, like I was saying, even though it's painful, it's more comfortable for you not to believe in yourself. You're used to that. And to change that is going to feel uncomfortable and be hard for you to recognize, I am good. I am okay. Even though I make mistakes, it doesn't make me bad or a bad person or not good or even not good at my job. Because even being good at your job means you still make mistakes at that job. So exactly. that's something that it's going to be hard to change because you're so used to it and you say you're 29. So for 20 plus years, you've been thinking and feeling this way. So it's going to take time. But eventually, hopefully you can start to internalize this feeling of I am OK. It's OK to make mistakes. I believe in me because True. that's most I keep, important.
4: I need to remember that every day. Yeah. Like, to myself. But before I end in the sir, in I need to know, is there a book that I can actually buy to read or
1: borrow from the library or whatever? Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think. One book, it's not exactly about this, but you might even look up the concept. I talked about before, mindset. So the growth mindset is really what you're going to be looking for. It's by an author named Dweck, D-W-E-C-K. So even if you don't read the book, look at some of her talks and what she says about this idea that we're not just good or bad at something it's about how we grow but most people have this notion that either you're stupid or you're smart either you get it or you don't when that's not the case with almost everything it's that you learn it and you have to get better at it and so that might be something that has an effect Um, but i really think the biggest thing for you is to enter therapy to get into that more long-term process of uncovering what happened to you and slowly changing that voice inside your head
4: yeah yeah, that's Probably what I'm gonna do in two months. And I have I found a book. Is this
1: by Carol um Lick. Carol Dweck, yeah. D W E C K. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. I found the book. Okay. Thank you so much, sir. I do appreciate oh, Nice time. talking
1: to you. Good luck to you. And don't yeah, forget love- you you are good <laughs> even if you don't sometimes feel it, okay? Oh, thank you, sir. I do appreciate <laughs> Nice to talking to you. Take care. Have a wonderful day. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> All right, going into another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller, Radio Hamra. You're on the air. Hello. Yes. Hi. Yeah. How are you? Good. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. I was. I was on a hold to talk to uh, uh, Doctor Holakui.
1: Is it this? You're on the air with Doctor Fadid Holakui. Were you looking for Doctor Farhang Holakui? Farhan Holakui. Yes. Yeah. His show's in about two and a half hours. So I, uh, yeah, I'm gonna put oh, you on hold. I'm gonna put you on hold, and they'll take care of you in the studio here. All right, let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air.
0: Hello, how are you?
1: Yes, hi, good, thank you. I just want to
0: see uh, uh, about the four year old boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, when uh, he goes to school, and uh, other kids hit him. Oh. and, uh, You know, it, it happened like three, four times. And then, uh, when I said to the teacher, they said he
1: had to defend himself. But I don't know how to say the kids. I
0: don't know
1: what should I do. Is this your son? Yeah. Okay. So your son, he's four years old, and some of the kids will hit him at school. Yeah. And the teachers say he has to just defend himself?
3: Yeah.
1: Okay. Um. So at some level yes it's good for us to teach our kids to stick up for themselves but i've never heard of a school where they don't intervene if kids are hitting each other are they saying they won't do no. anything
0: they said we're going to talk to the kids we're going to talk to the kids the kids about it that's it
1: okay well what would you like for them to do i
0: don't know to prevent it something i
1: don't know well you know they i think the talking to the kids is good and they should be at some level trying to prevent it. Now, kids are going to be playing and things do happen where they might hit each other, hurt each other in preschools. Kids will even sometimes bite each other. And, of course, the the teachers or the caretakers should be very aware and close by to prevent these things from happening as much as possible. But they can't stop it from happening completely where it never will happen. These things do occur. Um, I don't think it's fair to just tell your son good luck and fend for yourself but I hope they are supporting him and if let's say him and another kid get into it and that one kid is hitting him they'll keep an extra eye or be mindful of those two kids playing but um, I'm still not sure if I get the whole situation as far as what's happened and what you want to see happen what, what would you like them to do? I just
0: wanted to watch what, what should I do Okay. Should I change the school, or should I, uh, should I put him in uh, class for well, like set, joggle, something? That, I mean, oh, that's
1: I well. I mean, I wouldn't do that just for that reason that we want him to stick up for himself. It can be good for lots of kids. Both there's the physical aspect to it. Um, there's discipline they learn and a feeling of confidence in themselves. But have you talked to your son about what's going on? Yeah,
0: they said she said they hit him.
1: Okay, but I mean, what kind of conversation did you have with him?
0: Yeah, the, so what happened is that that, that, that hit, hit me or he pushed me. Okay. Or he threw, threw out that, like, toad. Mm-hmm. Hit me, something like that.
1: Okay, but, but that's not a conversation. That's just him telling you. What did you say to him when he says that?
0: I asked him what happened, you
1: know. Okay, but then I would explore a little bit more. How did you feel? So get get in touch with his feelings and validate his feelings that we can understand if that hurt him or it upset him. Uh, and then stay with him with his feelings and showing him you understand his feelings, you care about his feelings, you can validate that it makes sense he felt what he was feeling. And then also after that, once you see he feels good in that way or feels that you've you've emotionally been there with him, you can explore with him what he did and what he can do next time in case this does happen again.
0: Okay.
1: Does that make sense?
0: So you mean by asking what you should do if somebody hits
1: you next time? Uh, Yeah, if something happens, or anytime someone does something you don't like, we can teach our kids. Again, I'm not saying I wanna give you this feeling that if your kid is getting hurt and attacked, just tell him good luck, figure it out, or he has to stick up for himself. At a school, absolutely, the teachers and the people that are on the yard or wherever the kids are should be paying attention to how the kids are interacting and making sure when kids are being aggressive or violent, they intervene. But at the same time, we do want to teach them just in general about this idea that if people, anyone, even family member, grown-up, kid, does something you don't like, you can and are allowed to tell them that you don't like what they're doing. And you can ask them to stop first Um, And then if they don't stop, you can ask for help. If you're at school, you can talk to teachers or whoever is around. And of course, you might have to stick up for yourself if no one is around or if something is happening immediately. But always with our kids, we want to take these moments and really all moments as opportunities to first connect with them, but then also to help them learn something or to go a little bit deeper than just what happened. So If a kid comes home and says, they teased me today, we don't want to just say, okay, they teased you, let's move on. You want to really make that a conversation, a dialogue, back and forth. What did you feel? Or first, even what happened? And then into the feelings and trying to connect with them about the feelings and how you can understand their feelings, care for them, make them feel taken care of emotionally. And then you can explore, well, what could you do or what do you think you would do if this happened again? And even sometimes, depending on the interaction, how do you think the other person felt? So in this way, we can help them learn some empathy or an understanding of other people's feelings as well. So that's why I'm saying uh, I would invite you to have those types of interactions with your son to try to see what you can also first to help understand him better and what he's going through, but help support him also.
0: He can go to the bathroom at home, but sometimes he has accidents at school, mm-hmm. and I don't
1: know why. Well, sometimes that when we we see like a kid has that they might be okay as far as being potty trained in general, but then they have accidents somewhere. It, it can be due to anxiety, so he might be more anxious at school and he's having accidents there. Yeah. But again, no, I don't know. Yeah. What is
0: the reason of
1: anxiety? Well, I don't know. That's something I would explore with him. And and just in, in talking to you a little bit a few times, your responses focus just on the why, and then it seems like it ends there. And I would want you more to connect with him and understand what he's going through, why he might be you know, doing this is important, but also what he's going through, what's happening. If he's anxious, I don't know why he might be anxious at school, but I would ask him. You just said some kids might hit him, so maybe he doesn't feel comfortable there or he gets teased, but it's it's gonna be up to you to try to connect with him a little bit more about what's going on.
0: Yeah, I always ask him, what happened?
1: What did you do? Uh-huh, good. Okay, and what does he say? He said he
0: just, I played. at school it was good, sometimes it was not good, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Okay, good. And, and so I'm inviting you to have more of those conversations with him, where you ask him about what he's going through and what's going on. Because in some of just the way we're talking, it seems to me that it might not be so easy for you to connect with him emotionally as far as talking about his feelings. Is that, is that something you do ask him about how he felt, what he's going through, trying to understand the emotions...
0: Yeah, sometimes I ask.
1: Yeah. Okay, good. And I would say just keep doing that and having those conversations to understand more about what he feels, because I can't tell you why he's anxious, if he is anxious. It's something that's within him, and so I would encourage you to talk to him about that.
0: You no, know, and the teachers, I send him to the bathroom. It it it's our but uh, I don't think it helps. You know. Mm-hmm.
1: It, it, you know, and maybe it caused more anxiety for her. It might. It, it could. And so there's there, that might be their solution. It might not be the best thing. But in in hearing you talk, I feel a, a an anger or frustration. Are you angry with the school? Uh, you know, no, not be angry. But I just want to see what should I do. Should I change the school? Like I said
0: I'm not angry, I just wanna see
1: what should I do. Right. And I don't know if changing the school based on what you told me is the right decision. I would more focus on what's going on with him to help him within this situation. A lot of times parents their reaction is, Okay, my my kid is having a hard time with their teacher, let's switch classes, let's switch schools. And I always encourage parents to say, Okay, rather than just making that reaction, let's see if we can resolve the issue and see what's going on there. 'Cause it could be something about the school, but it could also be just something that your kid is going through and things that you can learn or help him with. So I would explore yeah, there, those things first.
0: Yeah, there's two kids they are they are very I don't know, they have ADHD, or I don't know what's going on to them. Those two kids hit other kids. You, you know. Okay, but in most and schools
1: in not, most I'm schools sorry. there's some kids. Yeah. No, it's okay, but in most schools there's some kids that are gonna be aggressive or have these things. So I don't think it's this school has these two kids that are the big problem in every other school. There's going to be no kids that are going to have any aggression or ADHD or whatever it is they're dealing with. That's why my first response is not to just go to let's switch schools because these kids are bothering him, but in seeing how you can help him. And it could be in working with teachers and people at the school of how to deal with these kids in the situation. I wouldn't just go to let's get him out of the school.
0: Yeah so um <clears throat> you know and then uh, i don't know he likes he likes the, i don't know why he sitting next to that you know, one of those kids maybe that's why he hits him i don't know
1: but that's what i'm saying you know there's a lot of i don't knows which is understandable and that's why i'm saying engage him in conversation not to know why do you sit next to him you shouldn't sit next to him but try to understand there could even be something that your son wants to be friends with these kids but they won't let him and then he keeps going up to them to the point where they push him away maybe your your son is even bothering them i'm not saying they should push him but it's much more complicated than just to focus on these are bad kids that push my son and I have to get them away from him, we want to understand what's going on more. Maybe your son is yeah, not I, picking up on what's I, going on.
0: Yeah, but I saw a first noticed one time one of those kids that threw uh, their toys toward another kid, toward a girl. And then it was dangerous because it might go, you know, hit their eyes or something. Well, and things then I uh, told the teacher, hey, mm-hmm. this guy's doing that, you know.
1: Well, kids are going to throw toys. I'm not saying they can't get injured or get hurt, but these things do happen. There's going to be, I can assure you, if you take your son to a new school, there's going to be other kids that throw toys. And even your son might throw toys sometimes. It's not
0: Why do they do that, doctor? Why, why do they throw it? toys? Uh huh.
1: Well, sometimes they're playing, sometimes they're aggressive, sometimes they're frustrated. There could be lots of reason they throw toys. It's not some one reason and we're going to figure it out and get them to stop. But I'm hearing more that you want things that you don't like happening around your son to disappear, but I'm letting you know they won't disappear. You're going to have to help him adjust to it better and recognize how he can deal with it. Kids are going to be you know, fighting and bullying happens in every school across the country. And I'm not saying it's good or we should like it or accept it and not work on it, but we can't say I have to find a place where my kid won't face any of these things. But you need to work with your child more. And there's a lot of When you respond, it's just, so. well, why is this? Why does that happen? This is bad. It shouldn't happen. But these things are happening. Your kid is going to be around some aggressive kids, mean kids, um, nice kids, all sorts of types of kids. And what you want to try to do is help your child develop the skills to navigate that world a little bit better, but also develop a relationship with him where he can talk to you about things and explore these things. Because again, if this kid is pushing him, I'm not saying it's your son's fault, but I want to understand how the situation is playing out, what might he be contributing? You're saying he sits next to that kid, so maybe if you talk to your son, he'll say, "I just really want him to be my friend," so I keep trying to play with him, and then you can understand a little bit more about what he's going through. So yeah, I don't. Yeah, you think he's friend, yeah. Okay. You think he's friend, but he's
0: not. Maybe. He didn't. Okay,
1: I know, but again, try to understand your son's perspective first. Don't just jump to that conclusion that he's not his friend. Try to understand where your son is coming from, and in in talking to you, I keep feeling that you quickly react to a conclusion or a judgment. Try to be a little bit more open and curious about it first, not just figure it out or stop it. Okay, so he wants to be his friend, so but what this. What should I ask, doctor? It's not just a one question; it's more of a conversation. It's not just I can tell you the magical question. You're gonna to have to talk to him, and say, "Oh, okay, so what happened? Bobby hit you. Oh, really, hit you? What did you feel?" And let him tell you what he was feeling. And then, oh, tell me more about what happened. So he said he hit you what happened before and explored a little bit more deeper. But you have to be a little bit patient in just our conversation. I I, a few times have felt you jump to a conclusion or jump to a reaction. You're going to have to take your time a little bit more. Be more patient. Slow down. Let him tell you what he's feeling. Let him tell you what he's experiencing. It's not something that you're quickly are going to figure out. There's no solution you're going to figure out the next time you talk to your son. It's going to be a process. And I again would not go to the reaction of switching schools because, at a new school, first of all, switching a school is stressful for a, a kid to go to, unless your son says, I really dislike my school and some things are going on. And that's part of another bigger conversation. But I wouldn't just jump to a new school because that's going to create its own challenges. I would try to see what's going on and how you can help him here before going to that place of let's switch schools. Okay, great.
0: Thank you so much. All, all right. Day.
1: Nice talking to you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, going to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment, we had a discussion with the mother, and it made me want to conclude with just the few minutes we have in today's show and talking to your kids about issues that they are going through. Because inevitably... Kids, especially in school, they're going to have things that come up. They have an issue with a teacher, an issue with another kid, bullying, teasing, feeling excluded. Lots of things are going to go in the course of their school years, and we can't avoid it. And actually, it's actually good for them to go through some of it. But what's most important is how we respond to it. And to begin with, most parents think, as I've talked about before, that their job is to take away the pain. So if the kid comes home, with some problem, we think we have to get the, take the pain away. And one of the first ways we try to do that is to say that they shouldn't be hurting in the first place, which is invalidating the opposite of validating their emotions, which is harmful to them in multiple ways. But an example of this is the kid comes home and says, some of the kids were making fun of me today and they wouldn't let me play with them. And our first reaction is to say, well, just make new friends. Don't be sad. Who cares what people think? People are going to think all sorts of things. And this is invalidating your child's emotion and emotional experience that they went through something painful. And even you yourself would be in pain if you had a similar experience. But because we don't like the idea of our child being in pain, we try to erase it. And this does not help and it does not work. So we don't want to invalidate their emotional experience. We want to try to understand it and validate their feelings. I understand you were hurt when they said that. That must not have felt good when those kids said those things or when they didn't let you play. And show them you understand their feelings, both in your words and how you respond to them, looking at them, connecting with them, maybe even putting your hand on their back or shoulder or giving them a hug depending on what it seems like they need, but giving them that feeling that you care. Another way that we try to avoid the pain is to remove the problem. And I know the mother previously, she was trying to do everything she could for her child. Uh, But often we do have these knee jerk reactions. If our kid is having a problem with another kid, let's switch classes. If our child is having a problem with the teacher, let's switch classes or even switch schools to get them away from the problem. And this, first of all, is not a good way of living life, but also doesn't teach our children this good lesson that conflicts arise. And conflicts are not something scary and terrifying and don't mean the end of a relationship, whether it's with a school or with an individual, but they're something that we can overcome. So if your child does have a fight with a kid in their school, we don't want to just quickly take them away. Or another thing we try to do as far as intervening is that, well, let's talk to that kid's parents and let's resolve it. So sometimes we'll say, well, you know, I talked to Jeff's mom and we worked it out. So you and Jeff are friends again. And the kids don't exactly know what happened, but it's as if the moms have worked out their problem. And this is not at all a good lesson for our kids to learn or doesn't give them a good experience of what it can be like to resolve a conflict. So if your child has a conflict with another student, whatever it might be, First of all, try to understand what happened first. Ask them what happened. So again, it's a discussion, a conversation, not just a judgment, not just you make a decision. Understand what happened. Get the background. If maybe they had a background with this kid where they've gotten into it before, understand what your child went through. As I mentioned with the previous caller, if it seems right, you can even ask your child what you think the other kid was feeling because that gives them an experience of empathy to see what it might be like in someone else's shoes and then also very importantly explore what do you think we should do about this problem? What should we do now? And give them this feeling of hope that this isn't something scary or bad. We don't have to even hate that other person that you had the conflict with. You might be angry with them and that there is hope for resolution. We can do something about it. And the best thing you can do is to give your child that opportunity to try to work things out with that child. And they might need some support. Maybe a teacher will have to be involved or around to help them have that conversation, but often they can have it themselves. But see if you can get your kid to make an attempt to resolve things. There's no guarantee it'll go well. Maybe the other child won't want to engage, might even become mean and hostile. We don't know, but give your child that opportunity. We don't have a guarantee of the result, but we do have a guarantee of teaching them that it's good to try to resolve conflicts, not to just avoid them, not to just think they're these horrible, bad things that means the end of relationships. Because unfortunately, many of us do live life in that way, especially in our Iranian community. We see so often people, even siblings or people who are very close, they'll say, oh, we haven't talked in 25 years. And you ask them why, it's become some fight they had that maybe no one even remembers the details. And that's not important, but because they had this one fight, it became the end of the relationship. So we approach things in this way, that one fight, one conflict is the end of a relationship. And this is a horrible message and a model to teach our kids. Any relationship that is going to last a long time has to be able to survive lots of conflicts, lots of disagreements, lots of issues. So give your child that chance to resolve that issue. And also, as much as we want to validate our child's concerns, show them we care about them, we are with them, we support them. We don't want to do what most parents do, which is assume our child was all noble and good in whatever the conflict was, and the other kid or the teacher is the problem and is a horrible person. So it's not about judging and trying to blame someone, but do try to be balanced, because a lot of times what parents do is even when it's with a teacher, they say, oh, this teacher is horrible and hates my kid and should be fired and We go complain to the principal or complain to the school district because this kid, this teacher was mean to my kid. And it's possible that you might have to file a complaint or do something. But first, try to understand the situation. And even with your child, show them you care about how they're feeling. You empathize with them. It must be hard what they went through. But you want to understand the situation. Because oftentimes a teacher got upset with your child because they were acting out. And let's say it was an appropriate response or maybe it was an inappropriate response. We want to try to understand both sides. So as much as we want to be supportive of our kids and absolutely we should show them that we're with them, we're going to support them, we want to also show them we want to try to understand what happened and not just excuse any behavior our kid does. Because I've heard of stories where a child has got caught cheating in their class on a test and the parents still blame the teacher somehow and say, they're out to get my te- my student, my son or daughter, or it doesn't matter what my kid does. And this is not a good message to teach your kids either, that somehow they are better than everyone else and they can treat people however they want. And I've seen this very often uh, in all parents, but definitely in Persian parents even more, this idea that my kid somehow can never have been wrong. So if something bad happened, it's your fault or their fault. And I'll support even my child's misbehavior or disrespecting people, or cheating, or being unethical. And to me, that's not actual support because you're not supporting the growth of your child. You're sometimes enabling and encouraging them to do things that are hurtful. So when you're trying to understand what's going on, of course, we want to understand what our child felt and what they're going through, but do try to be balanced as well and understanding what happened, understanding the other side of things, not taking the other person's side, but trying to get your child to see the other side as well or understand their own behavior. Because if your child is creating fights themselves, but we always blame the other person, we won't allow our child to grow to recognize what they're doing that's contributing to these issues because if they don't, they'll continue to initiate things the way they have and end up with the same problems that they're dealing with. So these issues are not first of all, black and white and all to be treated the same way. But we do want to approach them first from a stance of curiosity, as we always want to have with our kids, to try to understand, validate and empathize with them so we show them that we connect with them, we understand them, we're with them, try to understand more what happened, and then also explore with them what they did and also what they want to do now to help resolve the conflict. And very importantly, not send them the message that this is something really bad that we have to avoid, but it's actually something we can face directly and try to deal with. Rather that this is some crisis, it's actually an opportunity to resolve something, maybe even potentially get closer with the person on the other side and see what we can do. To me, that's one of the most valuable lessons you can teach your kids, that we don't have to shy away, avoid conflict or be scared of it, but it's actually something we can face and embrace and have hope that things can be resolved and things can get better. All right. That brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you to all the callers and the listeners and to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Talakwi. Have a wonderful day.